I'm going to be preparing the next three or four weeks to preach through the Gospel of John. We finished Titus last week, and my feeling is, my sense is, having gone through a book like Titus, which is very instructional, um, just clear-cut, you know, uh, as we saw last week, the essentials for a healthy church and so on. So we've been talking about ethics and ethics born out of theology and so on. And so as we think and pray about where to go next as a church, um, I feel compelled to go to a gospel so that we can actually hear Christ's words from Christ's mouth and follow uh, his life and ministry. And we've done Luke prior to Titus. Well, now we're going to go to John. So we've done a synoptic gospel. Now we're going to go to John. And so I need a few weeks to prepare for that before we start into the gospel. And so in the meantime, in the next three or four weeks, we're going to be dealing with a topical series. And so pardon the topical series, I could say. Um, and you'll discover what that topic is in just a moment in Luke chapter 11. But before we get to this text in Luke chapter 11, I want you to visualize something with me. Imagine for a moment a woman who's a gardener, tends her garden every day, The garden has been her life's labor, her prized possession. Each day, you can visualize it, a woman who walks up and down the rows of her garden and inspects the flower beds and so on, stops and smells the aroma from her flowers, remembers the time and the occasion that she planted each one. Think about a woman who tends plants and prunes the plants and clips the plants, and even replants them when necessary, not allowing any of them to die. Some of her plants she brings back from the brink of death through diligent uh, pruning and fertilizing and nurture. She so enjoys her garden that sometimes when she's not in her garden, her mind goes and wanders back to it. She transports herself into her garden She's so familiar with the garden that she can visualize it at any time, and she could think about just walking up and down the rows and remembering the flowers, and she can almost smell it even when she's not there. She knows every path. She knows every plant. She relives the sights and smells. In fact, she so loves her garden that when others are around this woman, it seems that every conversation, one way or another, always ends up back to her garden. She loves to tell others about it, even to the point of talking about specific plants and specific flowers, with an emphasis on when she planted them and how long she's had them. If others were honest, they would probably say that, you know, it kind of becomes insufferable sometimes. But such opinions don't bother our woman, because when life gets difficult for her, she just retreats to her garden. Walks up and down the rows, she relaxes, and that's where she is most comfortable. But now imagine for a moment that this is really not a garden of plants and flowers at all. What this woman is actually cultivating are rows and rows of past hurts and grudges and offenses. Her pruning and clipping and fertilizing and nurturing is not healthy or life-giving at all, but the actions of this woman are actually poisonous. This is a woman who's not willing to allow any offense against her to die. 
The sweet aroma that she smells is not sweet at all, but it's a poisonous stench. Her hours walking in the midst of her garden are actually hours spent recounting every hurt and every offense that others have perpetrated against her. She even has a special portion of her garden where she simply sits and dwells on the failures of other people. When she's around others, she doesn't really talk about plants and flowers or the occasions upon which she planted them. Instead, her conversations continually veer off into talk of past offenses and gossip about others that she feels have wronged her. Now, the one thing that's consistent between, you know, the visualizing the garden of plants and the garden of past offenses, the one thing that's consistent between those two things is she becomes insufferable (laughs) in both occasions. Her garden is not harmless. It's not a relaxing hobby. It's destructive. It's a poisonous, festering bed of undealt with hurts and broken relationships which can serve to entrap her and isolate her forever. Now, before we judge that woman too much, we have to answer some questions. And maybe we can all consider whether or not we can say this of ourselves. Could you say you often replay in your mind past incidents that have hurt you? Could you say that when you think of a particular person or situation, it makes you feel angry? Could you say that you try hard not to think about a person or event or circumstances that cause you or have caused you pain? Could you say that you have a subtle secret desire to see someone pay for something they have done to you? Could you say that deep in your hearts you wouldn't mind if something bad happened to a person who's hurt you? Could you say that you often find yourself telling others about somebody who has hurt you? Could you say that a lot of your conversations end up revolving around situations that involve hurts? Could you say that whenever a certain person's name comes up, you're more likely to say something negative about that person instead of something positive? I think all of us can relate to at least one of those things. For the next few weeks, as I prepare to preach in the Gospel of John, we're going to uh, focus on a topical series on the topic of forgiveness. Specifically, we're going to look at ten destructive effects of unforgiveness. We're going to start in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. This is the model prayer that Jesus gives to his disciples. This is how we should pray. This is not given to us as a repeat after me. This is not a rote prayer. This is a framework where Jesus provides for us essential elements that should be incorporated into our prayer life. And so let's read it, four verses. After the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, he says, in verse 2, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, And lead us not into temptation. This is, again, not a prayer primarily primarily to be repeated, but it is a prayer that shows us the things that ought to be part of our prayer life. And that last phrase, or the second to last phrase there, but forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. That's the only phrase here where Jesus kind of elaborates on or uh, expands upon in the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 6. 
And so in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus continues when he gives this model prayer, and he says this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Now this is tough. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now we need to distinguish between two types of forgiveness here. There is a judicial forgiveness. There's justification where you're declared righteous. All your sins are forgiven. That happens at the moment of salvation. That is not conditional. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're forgiven. That's not the type of forgiveness we're dealing with here. What we're dealing with here is is relational forgiveness. This is that forgiveness that ensures that we have an open line of communication with the Father. We have an open fellowship with the Father. The Holy Spirit is neither grieved nor quenched in our life because we are right with our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's relational forgiveness is what we're talking about here. So keep that in mind as we talk about uh, this throughout. And we know that it's relational forgiveness because the whole context of the Lord's Prayer is that of a child speaking to his father. This is not somebody hoping to have a relationship. This is somebody who's already in relationship with the Father as a child. So keep that in mind. Relational forgiveness. What Jesus is saying here is that as a child of God, if we refuse to forgive others who offend us as we walk through this life, we really should not presume upon God's relational forgiveness. We should really have no expectation that our Heavenly Father will forgive us our daily offenses when we're holding grudges against others. And that seems so harsh, and it catches us off guard, but as plain as day. When Jesus says, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Charles Spurgeon said, unless you have forgiven others, you read your own death warrant when you repeat the Lord's Prayer. You condemn yourself as we read the Lord's Prayer. Well, what is forgiveness? Genuine forgiveness is offered freely and sincerely. It's a determination not to hold our offender to account for their offenses. It is not a decision to simply internalize our unforgiveness and never mention it again. It is a decisive action whereby we put away all bitterness and we put away all anger and refuse to replay in our minds or our hearts or dwell upon those offenses again. It is giving up any desire to retaliate or to see our offender pay or to suffer for what they've done. It is the desire to offer to others the same free forgiveness that we understand we have received from our Heavenly Father. And forgiveness is liberating. It's comprehensive and it's free. So then, if forgiveness is liberating, what can we say about unforgiveness or lack of forgiveness? It's enslaving. It's enslaving. And as we're going to see, and I think we're actually going to see 10 of those, these over a series of weeks, 10 destructive effects of unforgiveness. For today, and as I said, this is a topical series, we're simply going to consider that unforgiveness actually betrays the forgiveness of God. It betrays the forgiveness of God. And if we have time today, we're going to Talk about three of these, three of the ten destructive effects of unforgiveness. Unforgiveness betrays the forgiveness of God. God's forgiveness and our forgiveness are linked in more ways than one. God's forgiveness, that relational forgiveness, forgiveness of us is conditioned upon our forgiveness of others. But also our forgiveness of others is born out of or flows from God's forgiveness of us. God's command to us is that since we have been forgiven... We must forgive others. 
That is, God through forgiveness is producing forgiving people. The church is God through forgiveness producing forgivers. It is what he expects, and that's what we see in our passage. It's what he demands. His forgiveness of us should be so transformative and so appreciated to his children, by his children, that it overflows into their lives, causing us to forgive and again to become forgivers freely. Anything short of free forgiveness towards our offenders really betrays the forgiveness that we've received from God. It makes a mockery of his mercy. It answers his grace with flippant disregard. Remember Peter? And maybe you're in Peter's situation right now. Are you saying, I don't like where this is going? Somebody's already come up in your mind and you said, okay, I have this island here. And if he sets his foot across that boundary, I'm tuning him out. Peter kind of got a sense like that when Jesus was, was raising this standard of forgiveness. So then Peter comes to Jesus and says, well, how often? I mean, this is a high standard, but obviously there's a limit. How often should I forgive others? And Jesus responds to him in Matthew 18. First of all, Peter says, should I forgive him seven times, which Peter thought was very generous. And then Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. And this is Peter asking, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? So this is personal offense. This is offense within relationships. How often can that happen? And I forgive. Jesus says 70 times seven. And that's not saying forgive 490 times. We know this. That's a a figure of speech. This is perpetual forgiveness. That's the perpetuity of forgiveness. That is, this is the character of a Christian where we continually forgive and continually forgive and continually forgive. Why? Because there is an inexhaustible fount of forgiveness that we've received from God himself. And so Jesus tells Peter, keep forgiving and keep forgiving and keep forgiving. And then he gives a parable in Matthew 18, verse 23. He says this. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, that's a huge sum. That's an insurmountable debt. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience on me. I will pay you everything which he clearly could not do, even if he was well-intentioned. He absolutely could not pay it. There's an inability there. There's no way that that could be done. And out of pity for him, it says in verse 27, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Just free, free forgiveness. And not saying, oh, you know what, let's make an installment plan, and you pay me so much for the rest of your life, and maybe you'll be able to approach a fraction of what you... That's not what he did. Absolute free forgiveness. Why? Because verse 27, the pity or the mercy he had upon him. Verse 28, but when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Not much at all. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. Why is he wicked? I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? You get the principle? There's a connection between how much he has been forgiven and the expectation then that he's going to give the same forgiveness to others. 
Anything else is wickedness. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Remember, Jesus started this parable by saying the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. I mean, the parallels are clear. This is unlike some of Jesus' other parables where you've got to kind of wait for the interpretation. I mean, the, the interpretation is right there on the surface. It's pretty clear. We all owed a debt that we could not pay. We all owed a debt incurred against God that was absolutely impossible for us to pay. But God, in His mercy, as we learned a few weeks ago, and His compassion looked upon us, seeing our inability, and unilaterally gave us free forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ. He forgave us all that debt that we could not pay. But like the man in the parable, we often are tempted. When others offend us and sin against us. Uh, By the way, sinning against us and causing an offense against us, which is far less offensive than our sin is against God. The offenses against us being far less than our offenses against the holy God of heaven. Our worthiness being so much less than the worthiness of our heavenly father. And yet we withhold forgiveness, whereas God gave free forgiveness. That's the picture. Just as this servant was expected to forgive his fellow servants in light of his Lord's forgiveness, we too are expected to forgive freely because we have been forgiven. You are What God is saying is, listen, you're not allowed to presume upon my forgiveness and then withhold forgiveness from others. God expects us to show the same compassionate forgiveness to our fellow Christians that he's shown to us. Our indebtedness to God for his unconditioned forgiveness. And this is part of why God has given us free forgiveness. Because through that free forgiveness, he leaves us all indebted to him. And thereby he creates forgivers. God is so concerned that we propagate this forgiveness that he will withhold relational forgiveness from his children who did not forgive their brothers. And so again, we are offended in far less a degree. We are far less worthy anyway. Yet, we are far less likely to forgive. When we withhold forgiveness, we are disregarding. Even betraying is the word I use. Betraying the forgiveness that God has given to us. And how does he feel about that? Well, like the king in the parable, he's angered towards the ungratefulness of his children at times. Like the servant in the parable, we can expect the discipline of our Lord, the discipline of the Lord as our Father. Ephesians 4.31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. How? As God in Christ forgave you. There's the connection. So, I mean, to what degree should you forgive? Well, think about how God has forgiven you in Christ. To what degree should you offer freedom from vindication? Well, look at how God has forgiven you. What degree of hurts should I be willing to forgive? Well, consider how Jesus suffered for you. We forgive as God in Christ forgave us. 1 John 4, 9 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
The measure of our love for one another needs to be determined by the love that God has shown us. The forgiveness that we show to one another is determined by the forgiveness that God has shown us. There's no escaping it. If you are here this morning as a forgiven child of God, He has created you to be a forgiver. God has connected our unwillingness to forgive others with an ungratefulness for His forgiveness. We can't escape it. If we withhold forgiveness, we're not simply sinning against those who have offended us. We're sinning against the God who has forgiven us. We're downplaying the debt that we have been forgiven. We're disregarding the depth of mercy and grace that he's shed out upon us. When a forgiven believer withholds forgiveness from those who have offended him, he is elevating his worth, even above the worth of Christ. It's a blatant, unmitigated, it's blatant, unmitigated pride and disregard for the Lord. Forgiveness from God is accompanied by a command to become forgiving like God. God. And you say, well, uh, some would say, well, I believe that we only forgive when some come and seek forgiveness. What if somebody never comes and asks for your forgiveness? At that point, then, are you freed from this command? And I would say no. We have a couple of illustrations. Stephen in Acts 7, falling on his knees while his persecutors are stoning him. And what does he do? He cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And the Bible says, and when he had said this, he fell asleep. There's no forgiveness being asked for. Uh, Stephen actually prays for and intercedes on their behalf and says, Lord, don't judge them for this. Don't hold this against them. He's interceding so that they could be forgiven while they are stoning him. Well, where did he learn such free forgiveness? Well, obviously from the Lord Jesus Christ, who in Luke chapter 23, when he was on the, the cross, said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. There's no seeking of forgiveness, but Jesus, Jesus unilaterally, implores, intercedes on their behalf, says, Father, forgive them. How about God the Father when he forgives us? But God showed his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners. And you say, okay, well, uh, because we, are, we love loopholes, right? We love loopholes. And you, might, you might already be looking for the loophole. Maybe you think you found the loophole. Well, what if they don't ask for forgiveness? Well, listen, you have to learn to forgive those who never ask forgiveness because sometimes you're going to have to find freedom of forgiveness in regards to those who have passed away. How many of you have a background where you've been offended by a parent? You've been abused by a parent. And you hold that with you. Bitterness. Wrath. You've got to learn how to let go. You've got to learn how to forgive somebody who will never, ever ask forgiveness. You have to learn to forgive somebody, uh, maybe, who has even passed away without ever showing an ounce of remorse. Why? Because it's not about them. It's about the liberation that God wants you to experience as you relinquish that to his judgment. And so we forgive those who have not even sought forgiveness. And you say, well, there's been an emphasis thus far on forgiving fellow believers. What about unbelievers? Well... We must also, in addition to forgiving our brothers, we must also love and forgive those who are outside the faith. One who believes he can exercise the forgiveness of Christ within the church, but not within the world, is really a hypocrite. Has more in common with the Pharisees than Christ, as we're going to see. 
Luke chapter 6, verse 27, Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer him the other also. From one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But, and here's his standard, love your enemies. Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you say the reward from whom? The reward from those that we are loving and praying for and forgiving? No, your reward will be great. And you'll be sons of the Most High. What is he saying? He's saying, in behaving this way towards your enemies, you'll be behaving just like your father. And you'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. What a high calling, but that's not just for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That's not just for those who love us in return. That's for everyone, including those who would persecute even those who are enemies, even those who are unbelievers. And when we do that, we simply behave like our Father. When we freely forgive those who hurt us, we are reflecting the very same forgiveness that he's given us. It's the very same forgiveness he's extended to the sinful world. It is to say, how can I, one who is so undeserving of forgiveness, who has been so freely and fully forgiven by God, God who has the greatest right to exercise wrath and judgment against me, How can I then turn and withhold forgiveness from others who hurt me? I can't withhold such forgiveness. To do so would be to betray the forgiveness of God. And so that's point one. Unforgiveness betrays the forgiveness of God. Number two, unforgiveness bypasses the justice of God. It bypasses the justice of God. The Bible teaches us that God is the righteous judge. God is the righteous judge. Any offense can be entrusted to his judgment. This can be difficult because to do so requires us to take matters out of our own hands and placing them in his. Doing so means that we're willing to allow God to be judge according to his timing and his standard. It's difficult to do because what do we desire? Immediate retribution. We want to hold others to our standard of justice. Relying on God as the righteous judge is to trust that however and whenever he decides to judge will always be good and right. It may very well mean that we never in this life see our offender pay for his sins against us, but we trust God's judgment anyway. Romans chapter 12, verse 17 says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And what he's saying is, Hey, listen, you have a sphere of responsibility, and I have a sphere of responsibility. As far as vengeance goes... That's outside of the sphere of your responsibility, and that's within the sphere of my responsibility. And so when you take that authority upon yourself, you're doing wrong, and so entrust that to him. So you've been offended. You've been hurt. 
So I want to make them pay. You might not physically make them pay, but you're going to make them pay by just mulling over those hateful, bitter thoughts in your mind all the time. Well, God is saying, no, just let go. Take that offense and give it to me. I will handle it. Not only will he handle it, but he's going to handle it according to his perfect standard. Not only is he going to handle it, but he's going to handle it in such a way that perfectly fulfills his own righteous judgment. So however that person ends up paying for that thing, if God sees fit to judge him, we know is a perfect exercise of justice. That's something we cannot be assured of when we take matters into our own hands. And so it's trusting that God will vindicate if necessary. It's also trusting that however he works it out is perfectly consistent with his justice. Because what are we afraid of? We're afraid that somebody's going to get away with something they shouldn't get away with. How dare they treat me like that and feel like there's no uh, consequence? When you entrust it to God's judgment, you say, Lord, you've got this. You're going to deal with this in your timing according to your will. And I know whatever you do is going to be consistent with your justice. So if they deserve vindication, they deserve punishment, they're going to get it. But frankly, if God's going to shed his grace upon this person, and God's going to forgive them, God's going to save them, God's going to change, transform their life, that's within his purview, but we entrust that to the Lord. 1 Peter 2.21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he is reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's even the example of Jesus Christ. And so as he walked this earth and he was persecuted and he was crucified, what did he do? He didn't revile back. How is it that Jesus could withstand and and not revile back and not threaten when he was suffering? Because by the Holy Spirit's power and in his perfection, he entrusted himself to the Father who judges justly. And so Jesus understood that he could withhold justice. He could withhold threatening. He could withhold reviling. Because the Father's going to deal with this however he sees fit. That's a remarkable example. Especially considering that Jesus Christ was absolutely sinful. Sinless. Any suffering that Jesus experienced was unjust and undeserved. That's not something we can say about our own suffering. Any suffering that Jesus experienced was unjust and undeserved. Yet he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. There's only one who always judges justly, and that's the Father. It's far better to commit our cause to God, the righteous judge, than to constantly question whether or not we've handled something properly. We know that however God works out the situation, it will be in perfect harmony with his justice. And so vengeance is not ours to exercise. Not within our purview. And so what's God saying to us? Entrust the offense to me, because that's my territory. In the meantime, what do you do? Love. Forgive. Pray. Trust that however he chooses is going to be consistent with justice. So one may think that we should just internalize our anger then. I'm not going to lash out. I'm going to entrust it to God. So I'm just going to keep it all inside. 
We just leave it to God so that one day we can revel in God's judgment against this person. But this is the attitude. This is not the attitude that he's called us to. Not only has God called us to not act out in retribution, but he's commanded us to do it with sincerity. He's called us to forgive and to care even for those who hate us. Remember he said that in doing so we're just like our father, Matthew 5.44. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For what? He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Remember listening to or seeing a very well-known prosperity preacher who quoted this passage in Matthew 5.45 in order to imply that God sends judgment and difficulty and trials upon the just and the unjust. That's not what verse 45 is talking about. He says what? For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He's not talking about trials. Just because you don't like a rainy day doesn't mean it's not a good thing. This is an agrarian society. Rain is a good thing. Sun is a good thing. Thank God gives blessing and common grace to the evil and the good. And so he says, be like your father. When we begin to experience bitter or unforgiving emotions towards those who have offended us, we should remember, God is the righteous judge. I can commit any offense to his judgment. If we're sinned against and we're unsure how to respond, that's okay because it's not our purview anyway. God will handle the situation. It's far better to simply commit our cause to God and do it that way. Don't, don't just erase it out of your mind, but actually, in prayer, go to the Father and say, Lord, I'm committing this to you. It's far better to simply commit our cause to God in prayer and trust Him to vindicate us, if need be, than to take matters into our own sinful hands. When we withhold forgiveness and become embittered towards others, we are bypassing or disregarding the justice of God. Well, that's number two. Number three. Unforgiveness betrays the forgiveness of God. Unforgiveness bypasses the justice of God. And lastly, unforgiveness belittles the suffering of Christ. Unforgiveness belittles the suffering of Christ. The Bible says of Christ in Romans 4.25 that he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. 1 Peter 3.18 says he suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Romans chapter 5 and verse 6 says that while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Isaiah 53 verse 4 through 6 says that he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Far from being one who's going to seek vengeance for offenses, Jesus Christ went to the extreme and actually gave himself to suffer because of our offenses, and on behalf of of us because of our offenses. While we were sinful, unjust offenders and rebels against God, Jesus suffered for us. He suffered the pain of rejection and betrayal and crucifixion, but more than this, he suffered by bearing the weight of our sin and the wrath of God towards our sin. He suffered and died for us while we were his enemies so that we could, what, freely forgive others. Forgiveness for us is free, but it wasn't free for Christ. It was costly. Even while on the cross, as we've already said, he cries out, Father, forgive them. Our sin, frankly, incurred a debt against God, which was impossible for us to repay. We deserve the wrath of God, yet forgiveness was purchased at a very high cost by Jesus, who is willing to suffer in order to pay for the offenses even against himself. 
And now on the basis of Christ's great suffering and sacrifice, he commands us to freely forgive those who also cause us to suffer. So in other words, what God is calling us to is costly. What God is calling us to actually can hurt. What God is calling us to actually is a form of suffering. What he's saying is, yes, sometimes you're offended and you just, what? You just absorb it. Sometimes you just take it. Sometimes you say, okay, that person has violated me. Uh, That person has hurt me. And you just absorb. You just take it. And you say, well, that's hard and that's suffering. Yeah, Jesus suffered for every offense that was perpetrated against himself. To withhold this forgiveness contrary to Christ's example is to belittle his sacrifice. It's to claim that our suffering is deeper than his suffering. It's to claim that our worth is greater than his worth. Whether we understand that or not, unforgiveness is a declaration that our suffering is infinitely greater than the value of Christ's. It's to say, I'm willing to receive his suffering for my sins, but I'm absolutely unwilling to incur suffering for the sake of others' sins. It's okay for him to suffer to such a degree for my sin, but I'm unwilling to suffer in any regard uh, due to the sins of others. The fact is, God, on the basis of Christ's suffering, has actually called us to suffer. And like Christ, he calls us to a willingness to suffer unjustly at the hands of sinners. 1 Peter 2.19 it says, for this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? In other words, there's no credit to suffering justly, but when you suffer unjustly, when you do good and suffer, and for it you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this, what does it say? For to this you have been called. That puts it in a different light, doesn't it? Now, what's your calling in life? You know what we can say? Part of our calling in life is, as believers, forgive those who offend you. Forgive those who hurt you. Forgive those who cause unjust suffering in your life. That's what you're called to. That's what we're called to. Why? Well, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile and return, and so on. We've already read that. But the point is, Christ did this while he deserved absolutely nothing. And we're just forgiven sinners. How much more then must we be willing to extend such forgiveness? That's our calling. Called to suffer and to suffer unjustly at times. It says this is acceptable. This actually finds favor in the sight of God when we suffer like Christ did. And when we respond just like he responded. When we suffer graciously. Could we say also that this is just part and parcel to our call to self-denial? We understand that a call to discipleship is a call to self-denial. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross daily and follow him. Whoever will save his life will lose it. Whoever will lose his life for his sake will save it. For what does a man profit if he gains the whole world, loses and forfeits his own soul? What did you think that meant? What do we think that means when he says deny yourself? Well, in part it means I don't spend this entire life trying to protect my reputation and to maintain proper social order and make sure people pay when they hurt me and so on. It's self-denial. It's not about me. I can defer. Justice may happen, but it's in God's hands. I have an eternal perspective. I have a spiritual priority. And so I can defer and entrust it to God and let happen whatever will happen in this life. And I know that I can pray for the one who hurts me because God is sovereign and he is the just judge. 
So denying self for Christ is in part a willingness to suffer like he has suffered. And how did he suffer? He suffered at the hands of sinful men. Remember in 1 Corinthians? Paul had to correct the Corinthians. Why? They were actually suing one another in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. There's offenses in the church, and instead of just dealing with it between, they're actually going to civil court among before unbelievers and suing one another. And Paul says to them in 1 Corinthians 6, 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. And look what he says the solution is. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Just take it. Just take it. Far better for you to absorb the hurt. So in conclusion, unforgiveness, frankly, is rooted in pride. It's rooted in an overinflated sense of self-worth. Our high view of self makes every offense or cause of suffering against us an unpardonable sin. Our high view of self declares an unwillingness to suffer or bear the offenses of others. It demands justice and vindication because we, we who dare not to be offended, have been violated. Yet in reality, what are we? I mean, what does the Bible say about us? I mean, we're wretched. (laughs) We're unworthy. We're depraved. We're sinners who frankly deserve nothing. And God is the holy God of heaven who is infinitely perfect and of infinite value. And he has condescended to us and offered himself to us. And even to the degree of suffering and dying for our sins so that he could offer us mercy and grace and forgiveness. When we withhold that forgiveness, what do we do? We betray the forgiveness of God. We bypass the justice of God. And we belittle the suffering of God. Next week, we continue with three more in regards to our relationship with God. And after that, we'll look at four additional ones in regards to our relationship with others. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your free forgiveness. Lord, this message stretches us. Frankly, easier to preach than it is to practice. But this morning, we acknowledge that You design salvation in such a way that the forgiveness that you offered is so absolutely undeserved by us that it's rendered us incapable of withholding forgiveness from others. You've put us in a situation where there's absolutely no way that we can claim the offenses against us are greater than the offenses that we have perpetrated against you. And so, Lord, you have rendered us eternally indebted so that through your forgiveness you have made forgivers. So I pray that you'll help us to follow the example of Christ, to respond to the forgiveness you've given us, and to freely give forgiveness to others. Help us to forgive those who have maybe passed on, to release that grudge, the bitterness that we're harboring. Help us to forgive those who are never going to ask our forgiveness. Help us to forgive those who are not fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. As we forgive, we understand that we are not neglecting justice. Instead, we are simply entrusting these things to your care 
recognizing that you are the just judge and that you will judge justly according to your will. So, Lord, help us then, having relinquished our rights to vindication or our right to justice, help us then with that freedom to turn into love and pray and forgive. And, Lord, such a wise design for your church that we then are a people who can absorb the hurts of others following the example of Christ and to turn and to offer the love of Christ. So I pray this morning for those who are struggling. There's some who can name names. There's some who have very specific situations that come to mind as we consider these things. And Lord, we don't in any way pretend that this is easy. So we pray that you'd give mercy, grace, help these who have been harboring unforgiveness. Lord, they've sensed that it's not good for them. It's harmful to us. It's embittering and it occupies our minds. I pray for these that you give them grace. Help them to, by your Holy Spirit's power, relinquish justice to you and to turn and to forgive. Help them to do it in your power. And then I pray that you'd help them to experience that freedom of forgiveness. We thank you for this and we pray that you would continue to do this work over the next few weeks as we consider this topic. And again, we just thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and for the free forgiveness you've given us in him. And we pray lastly for any who are there, here this morning who are not yet believers. Help them to realize that their sin rightfully deserves your judgment, but that you provided your son to forgive them their sin, to offer free forgiveness. So I pray that they would express their faith in Christ as Savior and Lord, and that they themselves could enter into a relationship with you as their Heavenly Father. And then, Lord, we pray that you continue to produce new forgivers as you save souls. Lord, we thank you for all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.